Thank you, son. Uh, I guess it's a good time to do an introduction. Uh, my name is James Torrey. I'm Caleb's dad, and I get to preach here on Father's Day. And Robert Crumry, a great friend of mine, thought it would be humorous for me to get to preach on Ananias and Sapphira dying in church. Now, some of you have taken your seat, and I appreciate the fact that you've done that. However, if you've ever lied in church, I need you to lie down on the floor, and we're going to have some people carry you out the door dead, okay? Welcome to a Father's Day message from a very challenging passage of Scripture. Um, the message would go like this, lead your wives to church, lie, and die. Thank you. Y'all have a great day. Make sure you leave your offering on your way out the door, whether being carried or whether walking out. Um, I tease about that. I've known Robert for almost 30 years. I worked and served, Kathy, my wife, and I uh, served alongside Robert in the mid-90s at a church down in South Austin when he was a youth minister uh, and a little less restrained in some of his preaching. But even though I'm older than Robert, I include Robert in one of the three most influential men in my life spiritually. A lot to learn from Robert, um, and I appreciate those of you who are here, especially those of you who are here in the student ministries. As we gathered at 9.30 to pray this morning, the Holy Spirit just reminded me that my early days as a believer in Jesus Christ was in a collegiate ministry. Um, I came from a drug-using background, started at 12 years old, overdosed on my 19th birthday, three months after I got saved. But it was through a collegiate ministry uh, that I began to be discipled, to learn the scriptures, to study, and to feed the passion for the Word of God. And four decades later, God is using me in a multitude of ways. And think, should the Lord tarry, where will you be in 40 years? 20 years, 10, where will you be in two weeks? It's a great opportunity for me to be here this morning. Um, the basics of the story of the church so far in the book of Acts is that the disciples were told to wait. Acts chapter 1, the disciples were told to wait. And, and the, the instruction from the Lord was, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and all of Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. If you will, Acts 1.8 provides a great outline for the book of Acts. Chapters 1 through 7, Judea, or that is the, the gospel message where they're witnessing in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12, they go to Judea and Samaria and then after chapter 13, the Apostle Paul, Saul, takes the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. But they're told to wait. After that, the message from here at Ridgetop was, was tuned to the spirit, if you will. If, the, if there's a key word, the key word there was spirit. The spirit comes and converts 3,000 people through the gospel preaching in languages that the individuals not all the individuals there understood. Well, the spirit that comes and empowers, the spirit that unites is also the spirit that brings them together as a family. And the key word for the third message in this series was tribe, was the tribe. It's described as this, 
The Spirit binds the new converts together in a new tribe that is devoted to the worship of Jesus, ongoing learning about Jesus' prayer and one another. And then comes the key word spread in Acts chapter 4, if you will. Persecution begins to take root in the area. The gospel's expanding. People are getting jealous. People are getting uptight. And persecution begins against the church. Robert makes a a fascinating passage in the notes in that spread. He says, the gospel goes from an epidemic of one source to a pandemic, multiple sources. And we're more in tune to that today, right? With the COVID, COVID shutdowns and, and the COVID spread, right? We're, we're more attuned to this idea of a pandemic. But instead of being a part of a pandemic that brings death, we are part of the pandemic that breathes life. If you know Jesus Christ and his personal, his son, God's son is your personal savior. Well, the church has gathered hopefully in safety away from the persecution. I want to come back to the question I asked you a little while ago. Let's get a little engagement here, okay? Loosen up that arm a little bit because you may or may not have to raise your hand. How many of you have ever lied before? Raise your hand. Okay, the rest of you are lying now. (laughs) All right. How many of you have ever lied in church? Oh, I got a hand in the back. That would be my daughter. How come y'all aren't dead? Y'all have to be dead now. Wages of sin is death. Actually, kids grew up with us in ministry, and one of their favorite phrases was, liars go to hell. You know, to hear that theological point from three- and four-year-olds was an amazing thing. But here they are. They're away from the safety of of the persecution, right? People are trying to kill them. People are trying to haul them off to jail. And they're supposed to be on base, if you will. They're gathering as a group of believers. You can't tag me. I'm on base, my grandkids would say. I'm in the safety of base. And lo and behold, what do we see? Two people coming into the church, a husband, a wife, and they drop dead. God, what is that all about? Happy Father's Day to all of us. And to those who will be fathers, and to those who had fathers, which should cover everybody in this room. Well, this morning we're on the fifth installment of this series, Ordinary Church. This morning the emphasis is on, keyword, holy. Holy. And a holy God is on full display. Pray with me here. My Heavenly Father, how is it that those of us who have lied can be alive now when the wages of sin is death, and yet we're still breathing in oxygen and breathing out carbon dioxide? Our hearts are beating perhaps a whole lot faster when we read a passage like this. Reverence for you, fear for you is the beginning of wisdom. And yet, perfect love casts out fear. So how do we find this balance, Lord? Where do we find it? And I pray, Father, that through the preaching of your word here and the proclamation of this message that you've given me, 
And you've given individuals across this globe for thousands of years to share. We'll settle the hearts and minds of those who are here today. We're actually causing an intense and immense amount of fear. Such that they take action to eliminate that fear. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The close of this passage, you know, you, you come into church, you want those warm and fuzzies. You want to feel good when you left, leave church. I've actually been told that, having pastored a church for 14 years, um, I've actually been told, listen, when, when I leave church, I, I don't want to be uncomfortable. I want to feel good. I'm sorry. Tell me what passage of Scripture you would have me preach in order to get you there. It's not to say that we're not to be comfortable and confident in our walk with Jesus Christ. But there are difficult passages here that reveal a portion of God to us that we might find uncomfortable. So the close of this section of sacred scripture ends with verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. You know what that tells me is what happened that day was heard outside the walls of that church, not just because people saw them carrying bodies out. I mean, think about how welcomed you would have felt this morning coming up, getting your name tag, excuse me, and have two or three people carrying a body out the door past you. I think I would rather go to Gordeaux's and kill myself through some great desserts. But if this passage makes you perhaps a bit scared, perhaps a bit nervous, or somewhat uncomfortable or really uncomfortable, that's totally understandable. This is not an easy passage of Scripture. But personally, I think we have just read what we just read as a result of something far beyond a couple who were judged harshly for lying. There are actually two different avenues to take through this passage. I'm going to take you through one of them and just hint at one of the others. There are two different passages, and I, I say that, pathways through this passage you can take to understand a little bit more about what's going on. The second one we're not going to come through is think about the impact of the Holy Spirit. What is the one unpardonable sin in Scripture? It is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What's another serious cause of death in the Scriptures? Lying to the Holy Spirit. Save that one for another day. Perhaps another sermon. What we want to talk about this morning, what I want you to walk through, is I'm going to call this three things. One, a parallel mandate. There's a parallel mandate here. Second thing I want to talk about is the protection of his bride, his church. And finally, to perhaps make all of us make an application and bring us comfort in the church today, the third thing is protection of his child. Protection of his child, you and me, the believer. So there's a parallel mandate. There is a protection of his bride, his church, and there's a protection of his child. I'm sorry, protection of his bride, the church, protection of his child, the believer. Let's start with this parallel mandate. I'm going to take you through passages a little bit at Scripture, take you through a couple of them. Hopefully, they'll be up here. Now, if you're in the room where the church had gathered that day, what you saw was two dead bodies carried out. But as we meditate on the Lord and what he did, we can see a bigger picture of what's happening here. I believe we can. 
And I believe it has to do with this parallel mandate that has similar outcomes. Now, maybe you have, maybe you have not heard the term dominion mandate. Maybe you're new in the faith like I was in collegiate ministry and you haven't heard some of these things, but I want to walk you through something called the dominion mandate. If you find yourself in Genesis chapter 1, it's page 1 of these Bibles in front of us or perhaps on the screen behind me, in the opening pages of God's Word, there was a dominion mandate given after creation, and it sounds like this in verse 28 of Genesis 1, and God blessed them. It's Adam and Eve. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God is saying, Adam, I'm making you accountable for all things. I'm making you accountable for all things. Well, I would consider that a physical mandate that we see all the way back in Genesis. A physical mandate to rule and to have dominion over the earth. But we find in the book of Acts, we find a spiritual version of the dominion mandate in Acts chapter 1. It says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. That's the Holy Spirit empowering them for this mandate. This mandate comes from Matthew 28. It's called the Great Commission. This is God giving the church a different type of mandate. It's a mandate to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth and where God commands, God empowers. And that's the whole concept between Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Perhaps you've even got it memorized by now. And Jesus came to them and said, all, 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 Authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And he says, as a result of this, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. There are two mandates, if you will, parallel mandates. There, there's one that's a physical in Genesis 1. Adam through sin, Adam and Eve through sin, handed that mandate, if, if you will, subjected humanity, if you will, and actually all of creation to destruction because they sold it off, if you will. They believed, get this, a lie. A lie. In the church of Acts, we have two dead liars. In the garden, we had two people who died because they listened to a lie. What you'll find fascinating in the parallel mandates is that there's similar outcomes, death and death, because there's a similar intrusion. And it's the same intruder. Listen to Genesis chapter 3. Shortly after given the mandate, here's what we find going on in the garden of Genesis chapter 3. This is page 2 in your Bible, right? 
It, 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 took, it took mankind all of two pages to mess things up. I could have done it in half a page. Right? Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent, row was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see, the, the physical mandate given to Adam and Eve quickly drew the attention of the enemy, that serpent of old. And he came in and began to tell lies to Adam and Eve. Now you've got the budding church. You've got the church beginning to emerge. It's been empowered by the Holy Spirit. And lo and behold, what does it tell us in Acts chapter 5? That Satan makes his appearance. Only this time he's making his appearance in an individual. Acts chapter 5 verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? There are a lot of people they lied to that day. All the people that had seen what Barnabas had done, I sold property, I came and laid it down, and there's another couple who said, hey, you know, we can kind of do something like that. But what the, what the apostle calls out isn't lying to the people. It's not even lying to the church. It's a lying of the Holy Spirit. And again, that's a, that's a different path I won't have time to cover this morning, but it's certainly one that brings fascination at least an interest to me. It's one that, that flags that sign that says, dig here, go deeper here. You're going to find more of me if we dig with the Lord. But it's not surprising what happens in both of those mandates. What does John 10, 10 say? The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. What has Satan come to do? To steal, to kill, and destroy. And I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, perhaps you're left wondering, and this passage in Acts chapter 5 causes quite a bit of discussion. How was it that God inhabited a believer? And I would say you've asked the wrong question. I would say Ananias and Sapphira were not believers. You cannot take residence in a place that's dwelt by the true and living God. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. I believe this is a key indicator that Ananias and Sapphira aren't saved. For Satan to come and take ownership can only occur with an individual who's not in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, who had been born again not of the will of man, nor of the will of the flesh, but born of God, John chapter 1 says. Because even Jesus himself, when being accused of having the power of Beelzebub, or Satan himself, Jesus says, listen, unless you tie up the strong man, you can't take residence there. And there's absolutely no way Satan took over a child of God. It doesn't happen. I can promise you one thing walking out of here. You do not need to fear possession, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, of satanic influence. You don't. Not at all. Now, you can be oppressed, not possessed, and I get that. Whole nother subject. Because while Satan in both instances has led people to destruction, I want us to know and be certain of this thing. Neither of these couples were without sin. 
And that doesn't let either of these couples off the hook, Adam and Eve, nor Ananias and Sapphira. I want to walk you through something we use in engineering. I'm a project manager for a computer chip company, communications company called Ericsson. If you've made 5G wireless phone calls, you've gone through silicon I worked on. Okay, it's up in the towers, it's on the ground. And as a project manager, we have a term called RACI. It's actually an acronym. I'm not speaking in terms of racy language or sultry language or anything like that. I'm talking about R-A-C-I, RACI. One of the ways I prefer to look at it is A-R-C-I, R-C. But that sounds too close to calling somebody a bad name. Okay, So I'm going to use RACI. But the actual order of the acronym is A-R-C-I. And we use this to identify the ownership, if you will, of a project. In any given project, you, give, you have somebody who's accountable for this project. The buck stops here. I accept full authority. That's the accountability. But on any project, you also have individuals who do a significant amount of the work. That's the responsible. They're responsible for making sure that project gets done. You have a C, which is a contributor. These are individuals that help get it done, and an I are the people who just need to be informed. Today in the scriptures, we're being informed in the garden and in the church in Acts chapter 5 came a contributor by the name of Satan. But the two people that held accountability and responsibility were Adam and Eve. They're not without sin. They're not without accountability. They're not without responsibility. In the gathering, if you will, in the garden, who did God talk to first after the fruit? Do you remember? He came and talked to who? Let me picture this scene for you. Maybe, you're not, maybe you don't have this in your mind. In Genesis chapter 3, Eve pulls the fruit and takes the bite first, right? It's man and woe to man. Okay, not quite. Don't shoot me. She takes the fruit, she bites it, and what does she do with it? She races home and makes Adam a fruit pie. No, she hands it to him. He's standing right there. He didn't preserve and protect his bride, following the instructions of what God had given him. And so when God walks through the garden, he doesn't say, Satan, where are you? He doesn't say, Eve, what have you done? He comes to Adam. Adam, where are you? Because Adam was given the dominion mandate, Adam is accountable. Fathers, husbands, future fathers, future husbands. God holds us accountable. Not because we're smarter, not because we're better looking, not because it is simply because God needs to break a tie vote between a husband and wife who are created equal. And with that majority vote, if you will, comes an accountability before God. But it doesn't take responsibility off the spouse. God first comes to Adam. Adam does what? It's that woman you gave me. Comes to the woman. What does she say? It's that serpent who deceived me. And then when the judgments are handed out, they're handed out, Adam, Eve, serpent. It's accountability. In the church this day of Acts chapter 5, who do they speak to first? God holds Ananias accountable, but he also holds Sapphira 
responsible, which is why three hours apart, both of them get carried out. There's no excuse. There's no excuse. The reason she's held accountable, Acts chapter 5, verse 2, J.R. read it for us. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, verse 2, and with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the disciples' feet. And Peter said, yo, Ananias. So why would God take the life of these two individuals? We've seen the parallel mandates, but I think it's better to look at what I call the protection of his bride, the protection of the church. Unlike Adam, Jesus Christ will protect his bride. And it comes in a very startling way, such in Acts chapter 5.11, great fear comes upon the whole church and upon all who hear of these things. Now, in church on any given Sunday, you're going to have three types of people, okay? And, and I, having pastored a long time, I realized that not everybody who comes through the church door was sent by God, okay? But in any situation on a Sunday morning, you're going to have typically three types of people. You're going to have attenders, you're going to have pretenders, and you're going to have contenders. On the attenders, these are people who are showing up. They may have a curiosity. They may have tried everything else, and now they want to try this Jesus guy. Quite often, it's the, the same Spirit of God that empowers His church that is calling these people to Himself in salvation. He's drawing, you could even say dragging people unto Himself. God, in His grace, mercy, and love for you, draws you to Himself. I don't know how long you've been coming here, I don't know if you're in the attender ranks, but if you want to know what it takes to become a contender, let's talk about salvation in Jesus Christ, the study of his scriptures, the empowering of the Holy Spirit that you may do the work. Within the church, there are pretenders. Ananias and Sapphira were not attenders, they were pretenders. Pretenders look at what everybody does that looks spiritual, that makes them stand out, that gets them attention, and guess what they go off and do? the same thing they don't have salvation but what they're doing is trying to mimic salvation they're putting up a facade they're saying hey hey I'm, I'm i'm spiritual what have you all right these are individuals who observe the actions copy them and or mimic the language of believers but then you have your contenders that's who many of you are becoming you hang around Robert long enough, you're going to be a contender for the faith. You're going to be a defender of the faith. And you're going to start attacking the gates of hell with the gospel of Jesus Christ so that dead men, dead women come to life. Contenders are these people who study. They defend their faith. They share their testimony, whether we realize it or not. You and I in this room today are a part of that spiritual mandate. When Jesus was speaking to the disciples, go therefore, where all authority is given unto him, go therefore, that is a commissioning of us to this same spiritual mandate. <clears throat> so what should our emphasis be? Well, early on in my ministry, I memorized, I shouldn't say ministry, early on in my faith, I memorized my very first scripture, it was Matthew 6.33. 
It says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things shall be added unto you. When I was in school, it was seek first the kingdom of God. When I did a stint in the military, it was seek first the kingdom of God. When I got out of the military and went back to school, it was seek first the kingdom of God. Barnabas sold property. Here's why the scene that's been pictured in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5 can appear so dangerous. Barnabas sold property and used the proceeds to provide for the saints. We read that in the end part of Acts chapter 4. He provided for those who were without. He sold it, brought it all, laid it at their feet, and said, distribute as you need it. He would become one of the most prominent individuals in the New Testament church. If you continue reading in the book of Acts, you're going to see 28 or 27 additional references to Barnabas. Son of encouragement. Because after he sold the property, he was elevated into the leadership and served along the Apostle Paul in the proclamation of the gospel. You see, by that act, that selfless act, that sacrificial act, Barnabas was elevated to a position of leadership in the church. How does that work if Ananias comes in, sells property, and he's filled with Satan. Who does that put in the leadership of the emerging church? It's the influence of Satan in leading. And God's like, that's not happening. Let me show you how fast it's not happening. Boom, he drops dead. Church, Ananias and his wife sold proper and they pretended to donate the proceeds and in red letters in my notes, it says that the risk was that they too would be elevated to leadership in the church, essentially placing Satan at the helm of this emerging church. But unlike Adam, God protected his bride to keep her holy, set apart for himself. We've often heard Ephesians chapter 5, and if you've been to any Father's Day sermon, you would have heard from Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to go into Ephesians 5. If technology works, it's going to be up on the screen behind me, but I don't want to look at the portion that's normally there. Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27, is husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That would be a simplistic Father's Day message, right? If Robert had been kind to me, that's probably what I would have preached at instead of Ananias chapter 5, right? In Acts chapter 5. But here in this, this, this passage where husbands are encouraged to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, perhaps it would be worth saying this much. Don't take that passage to think that if I die for my wife at any given event or in any given moment, I've satisfied that passage. When it says Christ loved the church and gave himself up, you have to remember that he left the praises of the angelic host. And for 33 years lived as a human, as a human, the God-man, suffered the most humiliating and painful death. When it says loves her and gave his life for her, it's not just he gave and allowed his life to be taken. It's he lived a life for the bride. If there's a message for us husbands and husbands-to-be, it's live that way 
Not for the moment where we may die for our spouses or even our children, but living every day dying for them. But the important portion of this passage actually begins in verse 26, because this is a continuation in speaking of God, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, God's plan for the church is for her to be holy, set apart for himself. It's always been God's expectation that his people be set apart for himself. I need to take you to an Old Testament passage because as we walk through this, we're going to get to a point where we're going to ask ourselves, so what? What does this mean for you and me? And I want to walk you through the most scary part of my spiritual existence and show you how a word from God can put all of that at rest. Let's start with another parallel passage from Leviticus chapter 10. I call this parallel passage because what we have in the garden, we had the, the, the physical mandate, the dominion mandate. But shortly after the exodus, when Moses says, let my people go, and he and his brother come, Aaron, his brother, is elevated to the Old Testament version of a high priest. Okay. He's the high priest, he's the spiritual leader, and he's got two sons, Nadab and Abihu. How do I ever remember those names? You're never going to forget it after this. Yabba-dabba-do, Nadab and Abihu. Okay. It's my Fred Flintstone way of memorizing. Sorry. Listen, when you get to my age, you got to use special techniques. God has set up the priestly order in the Old Testament under Aaron, the first high priest and brother Moses. But Aaron had two sons, Nadab and Abihu, who thought it would be cool to offer God a sacrifice of fire. I don't know how many of you are aware of this story, Leviticus chapter 10. It's another one of those doom and glooms, right? God killed them both. Get this. Get this. This is Aaron, the high priest. And I want to say something that may cause a little bit of a chill, or even with the AC off and it's starting to warm up in here, may make you really uncomfortable. Listen, that's the equivalent, Nadab and Abihu, of God killing Cooper and Corey. Now does it resonate? Right? I've known those kids a very long time. Don't spend a lot of time with them. But I've known Robert over 30 years. And that's the equivalent when Nadab and Abihu come into the church, if you will, the gathering of believers, and they too are struck dead. Perhaps there's another parallel in that passage you can explore. Here's what's resonated in my head. After their death, God tells Moses to go tell his brother Aaron why God killed Aaron's two sons. How would you like that assignment? Hey, Robert, let me tell you why Corey and Cooper are dead. In Leviticus chapter 10, verse 3, Moses says to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke. This is still equivalent for you and me to hear today. By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. Holy. 
the whole emphasis of today's sermon is this word holy. Everybody feeling comfortable now? You got those warm and fuzzies on Father's Day? I know that. Message to Robert's going to be this. Bro, don't ever let that guy preach again. He just ruined our Father's Day. But let me share with you some things and get into some personal experience here. Because I need to answer the question. We've, we've got this parallel mandate. We see this protection of the bride, but now we have protection of his believer. Isn't this really what we want to hear next? Right? Does this mean it's safe to lie in church now? I want you to hear this commandment, church. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 should be on the screen behind me. But as he who called you is holy, is God holy? Yeah. Are we in a passage on holy? Yes. Has God killed Nadab and Abihu because they didn't recognize him as holy? Yes. You also be holy in all your conduct, for it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Do you hear, believer? Do you receive, church, that this is God's commandment to you and me to be holy? So how's the believer protected? Well, I need to give you the wrong definition of holy. And the reason I want to give you the wrong definition of holy is because I lived that definition for a while and then got the fire scared out of me on a Sunday morning when God enlightened me to what holy meant. The true literal translation is just set apart. Okay? But I, perhaps errantly, in error, defined holy as God is without sin. That is a truthful statement that God is without sin. Okay. It's a truthful statement. But that is a woefully inadequate definition of his holiness. You see, for a very long time, I thought this holiness of God meant that he was without sin. And on a Sunday morning, I had a very startling and scary and yet comforting enlightenment to God's holiness. And this was well over 20 years ago now. Could have even been 25 years ago. During our service that morning, an elderly deacon, a godly man, Sunday school teacher for 50 years, he was asked to dress up like Isaiah the prophet. Dressed as Isaiah the prophet with a staff in hand, he walked from the back of what was our sanctuary is actually our gymnasium, is our family life center. We had grown out of the small sanctuary. We were in this big gymnasium, seated about 300, maybe 350 people. And this deacon comes walking up the aisle and he is quoting Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. My assignment after this deacon gets up walks to the front and quotes is I'm supposed to come to the front and pray. Here's the scenery. Three slides in Acts chapter or Isaiah chapter 6. He begins reading this and this is actually a historical account. It says in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. 
With two, the seraphim would cover his face. With two, he would cover his feet. And with two, he flew. You see what the angelic hosts are doing? With their wings in the very presence of God, they're flying with two wings. They're covering their eyes so as to not even look upon God. And they're covering their feet, covering their lower area, which is an indication that they are creation. And they're saying, we are but creation. And we will not look upon God. This deacon is walking down the aisle quoting this. One cries to another. The two seraphim with face covered, with feet covered. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Angelic beings declaring a trifecta. The trifecta is when you say the same word over over, over, three times. I had an intern out in California, and she said, God is beyond holy. Way beyond, way far set apart from us. In fact, it's either Psalm 113 or Psalm 116, where God says, I have to humble myself to look upon the earth. And here's this angelic host in the very throne room where God is high and lifted up. His robe is filling the temple. And they declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the doorposts were shaken by the voice of Him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, woe to me. I am undone. Today's vernacular. Isaiah, experiencing and understanding the holiness of God, would have said, I'm a dead man. And now some snot-nosed kid's going to come up, probably older than that. Walk down an aisle following what Isaiah just said with a definition of God's holiness that he's sinless. And as I got up to that pulpit, I began to realize this is angelic Host who had never, ever committed a single sin. Sinless, created beings declaring to the God of hosts, you're holy, you're holy, you're holy. And they're covering their face. And they're covering their feet. And I realize my definition of holy not real good. I also know that there's a guy named Nadabihu whose brother was Nadab. And when they went before God who said, you must, by those who come before me, I must be regarded as holy, I step in to pray that morning, fearless to pray in front of 300 people. That didn't bother me at all. But I'm coming before a God that I've just understood is far more holy than I ever realized. Folks, that'll scare you. It should scare you. I was terrified. I knew what the Word of God said. 
my definition of holy had just been corrected. What happened next? was probably the second time I heard the Lord speak to me. The first time in January 1996, I was asking the Lord if he wanted me to be a deacon. He said, I've called you to preach. I went to preach. But I'm standing on that stage that Sunday morning, trembling at the holiness of a God. And I don't know whether I said this out loud so that people in the room heard me, or if it was just a dialogue between me and the Lord. I said, Father, if sinless creation has to cover their face and their feet to come into your presence, how am I coming? And he said this, because you're covered in the blood of my son. Do you understand now how believers have access to the holiness of God? It's because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ poured out because when I was accountable, Jesus said, I will be accountable. I will take your sin." in front of three, 350 people, and I just wept. There's a lady who walked up to my wife afterwards while we were putting up the chairs in the gymnasium. She said, what was James all broken up about? God had enlightened me to what he had revealed to us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, hopefully again behind me, scriptures say, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In that picture before Isaiah, there's more to it than just being covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ, unlike the Old Testament, does not cover sin. It cleanses sin. And it removes it. But there's this great exchange with Jesus Christ. For God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. That means he's taken the accountability that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There is an exchange with God at that point. My unrighteousness on him, his righteousness on me. And as his child, I can stand in the presence of Jesus Christ. Here's what it says in Hebrews, because I'm not the only one, saint. If you're in here this morning and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, here's how you come into the presence of a holy God. Boldly, with confidence. Not because you're covered, but because you've been cleansed. Hebrews 4.16. Let 
us then with confidence. Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. When you come into church, don't worry about whether or not you're going to tell a lie. Rejoice in the fact that you are coming to the presence of the Almighty God with full access in this dispensation. And I say that because there's another dispensation to come. There's another scene to come where those who are in Christ Jesus will get to physically see and be a part of what Isaiah saw. I call heaven this, my friends. It's unrestricted access to the unrestrained glory of God. Where if God were to unveil the fullness of his glory today, everybody in this room would turn to ash. But when raised from the dead and we stand in his presence, we stand boldly, confidently, and invited. You know, um, on the night he was betrayed, we'll transition over here, Jesus took the bread, broke it, and gave it to his disciples. I've been camping out on a passage in Luke where Jesus was getting ready to to observe the Lord's Supper, the, the Passover with his disciples, if you will. And Jesus himself makes a comment and a statement that just really is almost two diametrically opposed topics in one sentence. He says, I have eagerly waited. He's excited. I've eagerly waited. I'm excited to break this bread with you. And he says, before I suffer. In the same breath, the Savior says, I'm eager to dine with you before I suffer. What could possibly put anyone in that state? He's in a state of passion. I eagerly want to do this. He's hours away from persecution. And he does so because he says, I will lay my life down that I may take it up again. The confidence in entering the thing that we're about to recreate is that Jesus Christ was eager to do it with his disciples, as eager as he is to do it with us this morning, until the day Christ Jesus comes. And then we do it in the fullness. And the only other thing that was amazing about that passage where he says those two things in that same sentence is the fact that his posture stood out. Jesus is reclining. He knows he's going to suffer. He knows he's going to die. And he has a peace that allows him to recline. I'm not sure what all's on your table, all on your plate, all on your agenda when you come in to a place like this. You may be eager to be around the believers, but there's things gnawing back at home, things that have to be taken care of. I get it. I've got those too. Things that I have to take care of later today on Father's Day. I get it. But Jesus was eager to do this with us. And now we'll take a few minutes um, to do this with the Savior.